chapter 11 to begin with. We are going to be all over the place again today as we were last week. We are on part two of the Lord's prophetic entry, Palm Sunday, which I thought was interesting since Palm Sunday is just right around the corner, isn't it? Not this Sunday, but the next Sunday. So here we are. Now remember to share this with people, all that you're learning about this very, very prophetic day. Remember back in John 10, verse 24, the religious rulers of Israel had previously asked Jesus, how long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, if ever he had told them plainly who he was, it was on Palm Sunday. Maybe not so much in direct words, but surely in fulfilled prophecy. All ground for ignorance was therefore removed. He had clearly demonstrated to Israel that he was her true king by presenting himself to the nation, as we saw last week, on the very day predicted by Daniel 9.25. I mean, to the very precise day. And to the very city predicted in Isaiah 62.11 and also in Zechariah 9.9, which was what city? Of course, Jerusalem. And he came by way of the very humble transportation stated in not only Zechariah 9.9 that he would be on the colt of an ass, but also who would think in Genesis 49, verse 11, all the way back to Jacob's prophecy as he lay dying. And yet, even though he came very humbly on the back of a donkey, he still came with the full royalty of a true son of David. Remember, we discussed how King Solomon, true son of David, rode into Jerusalem to present himself as the heir to David's throne, and that was on the back of a mule, 1 Kings one thirty-three, And he presented himself as the peacemaker, Shiloh, amidst a gathering of the people which was predicted again back in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. If ever there was a full gathering of the whole represented nation of Israel and all the people from all the tribes, it was when Shiloh, peacemaker, rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Remember, there were some two to three million people there that day, and they were from everywhere, all the tribes represented. And that was predicted in Genesis 49. And furthermore, remember this, we talked about this at the end of our lesson last time, he also came into the city exactly as the Shekinah glory of God had departed from the city. Back in Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel the prophet had been privileged to see the Shekinah, I don't know if that was a privilege or not, be very depressing to watch the Shekinah glory of God depart from from the temple and from Jerusalem and from Israel and Ichabod, the glory has departed to be written over the nation, but he saw it depart from over the Ark of the Covenant, out the temple, through the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. And how did the Shekinah glory of God, veiled in thin human flesh, return to the city? Exactly the same pathway. Exactly the same pathway. Now, I don't know if there was any individual present that day, Palm Sunday, who was astute enough, you know, to have put all of this together. I doubt it. You know, even here we are two millennium later, and uh, most of us, some of this has been new revelation to us. So I doubt there was anybody there that day who could put all this together. We know that the apostles didn't because John told us they didn't. That was in John twelve sixteen. They didn't get it until after, after the Lord was glorified. But perhaps, let's say maybe 
some of the very, very scholarly, like some of the lawyers or scribes who had studied the scriptures all of their lives, maybe they had put some of this together and, uh, but didn't want to share it because they just saw in it too much danger to their own status. They liked the status quo. They liked being the ones in power, and so they kept their observations to themselves. I don't know. That's just speculation. But it surely would not seem that anybody yet knew that the Lord was also beginning to fulfill the picture in type of the Exodus chapter 12 Passover lamb. Jesus was, as John the Baptist had introduced him to the nation, he was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. And now, if you think about this, what did they do? What were they to do in Exodus chapter 12? Well, they were to select their Passover lamb, and then, and of course that was on the 10th of Nisan, and then for the next three and a half days, they were to examine it to make sure that it had no blemishes whatsoever, and then it was to be slain on the 14th of Nisan. Well, he had been introduced by John, the Lamb of God, which comes to take away the sins of the world. Then for the next three and a half years, he was examined by the nation, was he not? And uh, no one had ever been able to accuse him of anything. Do you remember the time when he asked them, this was in John eight forty six. He asked them, point blank, convict me of any sin, and no one was able to, to convict him of any sin. And the best that they could do was revert to their very immature game of name-calling. And so to answer that question, they said, Thou art a Samaritan and has a devil. Wasn't that mature of them? And so now it was the end of examination time. See, that's why he couldn't have arrived in, in Jerusalem the previous Passover because he would have only been examined for two and a half years. That wouldn't fulfill the Passover picture. He's been examined for three and a half years. It's the end of examination time. And so on this Passover of this year, also filling Daniel 9.25, he would be what? He would be the Passover lamb. He would die. And of course, to even further... I don't know how, how plain he could make it to these guys, but to even further fulfill the picture and type of the Passover lamb, he officially presented himself to the nation on Palm Sunday, which that year happened to be not only the day predicted by Daniel, but also the 10th of Nisan. Now, who had orchestrated all that? I mean, that involves orchestrating the whole calendar. And uh, that was, of course, when the, the Israelites were to to um, select their lambs. He presented himself to the, to the nation on 10th of, of Nisan and then for the next three and a half days, not years this time, but for the next three and a half days, he would be examined and scrutinized and questioned and challenged by every conceivable group of spiritual and political leaders, both Jewish and Gentile, and then without being, you know, with being found with no blemish whatsoever, perfectly sinless, spotless, his innocent blood would be shed on, he would be slain on the 14th of Nisan, precisely the date given by God through Moses in Exodus chapter 12, and also the very time he was slain was the time of day that they were slaying all the Passover lambs at 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour. Isn't it amazing? You could say it was a fourth day, but because it was at 3 p.m., I say three and a half days, you could go four days. Because when you get to the ninth hour, that's three-fourths of a day. I don't know if you're following me there, but I say three and a half because it so perfectly fits the picture. I think in your books I say four days. It doesn't matter. It's three-fourths of a day. 
All right, so Christ was painting a picture here that was so vividly dramatic that Israel could not fail to see what he was claiming. And in riding in on this day and fulfilling all of these prophecies and prophetic types, he was, de- he was forcing a deliberate decision. The nation must either accept him, accept his claims, which were in full accordance with the scripture, or the only other choice, reject them. But if she rejected them, she was to do so based on her own ideas about a Messiah, Certainly not what the scripture said. So before we begin part two of our king's prophetic entry, and I better be careful or this will have to be part, we'll have to go to part three. So I got to get it all in today. But um, remember last week I subtitled our part one, the, the lamb rides the donkey. And um, you, I just can't wait until Betty and Leslie are finished with that book they're writing. They're writing a children's book. And uh, Leslie's illustrating it on that little donkey who carried Jesus into Jerusalem. I had the privilege of reading it this past week, and I can't wait till we have that out on our tape table. So keep working on it, guys. But anyway, um, that was entitled the, the Lamb Rides a Donkey. Today's lesson isn't quite so cute. It's subtitled Shouts, Scorn, Stones, and Sobs. And you'll understand that as we get into it probably already do anyway. (laughs) Now, before we get into the lesson, I do want to mention here, and this I found exciting because it was a new revelation for me, but there were actually three phases of the Lord's presentation of himself into Jerusalem at this time, on the first three days of the Passion Week. Before, on day four, he was presented as her lamb. Okay, now you'll understand what I'm talking about as we go through these three phases of his presentation of himself to Jerusalem as her true Messiah, actually as God. (laughs) Um, The first phase, the official one, occurred on Sunday, which is what we're discussing today, when he presented himself to Israel in Jerusalem as her true king. He permitted the multitudes, as we will look at, he permitted them to hail him as the king of Israel. That's in John 12, 13. And when he was commanded to silence the people for calling him the king, the Pharisees said, hush them up. He would not do so. So he was officially saying, yes, I am the true king of Israel. That was on Sunday, his presentation to in, into Jerusalem. Then the second phase of his presentation of himself to Israel occurred on Monday. Now, you know, Sunday, he went back to Bethany. So when Monday morning arrived, he got up really early Monday morning, and he headed back, went back into Jerusalem. And on Monday morning, he went straight to, as he always did since he was 12 years old, he went straight to the temple. And what did he do? He cleansed it of all its filthy defilement. So he was presenting himself on Monday, phase two, as Israel's true priest. The third phase of his presentation to Israel occurred on Tuesday. He again departed on Monday night from Jerusalem, went back to Mary and Bethany's house, and then on Tuesday morning gets up early, 
goes into Jerusalem for the third time, goes again straight to the temple, and what does he do? He teaches the people all day long. He teaches word of his mouth. And on that day, he is interrupted over and over again with rapid-fire succession from every conceivable, conceivable group of uh, religious rulers that you can imagine. Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, all of them try to debate him, and he undeniably defeats every one of their wickedly motivated confrontations with the power of the proclaimed word of God. Then, after that long day, and believe me, we will be on Tuesday for at least a year, maybe it's a year and a half. That is called the Lord's busy day. Last time we taught on it, I didn't think we'd ever get out of Tuesday. It's just so much on that day. Um, But then when he finally leaves Jerusalem, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and up there on the Mount of Olives, he gives his men. Now, here's the greatest preacher who ever lived, and he gives the greatest prophetic sermon that has ever been preached. It was called the Olivet Discourse, which will be at least a 10-week or 12-week study. But um, so, to make a long story short, on the third day, he was presenting himself as Israel's true prophet. True prophet. King, priest, prophet. King, priest, prophet. You know, nobody could ever have all three of those roles. Obviously, he was presenting himself as the divine one, the God. And then... You know, on the fourth day, he presented himself as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed. Well, with each of these three succeeding days of the Passion Week, the high priest Caiaphas and his crowd... Now, Caiaphas was a usurper high priest. He was a wicked man. He had no business being the high priest. But they all became more and more hostile toward Jesus. They did not at all like his Sunday entrance as king. But they hated even more his Monday entrance as priest because then he affected their pocketbooks. And they absolutely abhorred his Tuesday entrance as prophet because he so calmly and easily frustrated even their greatest challenges to him on that day. So, you see, by the time Judas showed up on their doorstep, they were more than anxious to immediately dispense of Jesus, even though they had originally planned to kill him when? After the Passover and after the two adjoining feasts, the feasts of unleavened bread and first fruit, fruit, first fruits, because then, of course, all the great masses of people would have been departed from the city. That was their plan, to, you know, hold him up somewhere in a prison, and then after everybody had left, then dispense with him. But... He was, he was pushing up their schedule. He was pushing up the schedule of the Sanhedrin so that that council would accept and act on God's timetable and God's schedule and not its own. So don't let anybody, please, anybody ever persuade you or convince you that Jesus, and I don't care where it's coming from, even if it's coming from a pulpit, Don't let anyone ever persuade you to think that Jesus was not in control of his circumstances. Absolutely he was in control. He was the one who planned all these circumstances. He orchestrated them from eternity past. He is in control. He knows everything. He is sovereign God, and he has planned it all for his purposes. And this is what makes it possible for, for Paul to have write, written 
and I don't know where this is. I thought it was in Corinthians, but I couldn't find it this morning. But Paul later wrote, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. See, he would die on the, on the Passover. It would be his schedule, not man's schedule. All right, I will get into the scripture, I promise you. Let's quickly review the chronology. For those of you who weren't here last week, um, our chron- the chronology of the events that immediately preceded the Lord's Sunday entrance into Jerusalem as her Messiah King. Well, what we speculate is that probably on Thursday night, a week before his crucifixion, Thursday night he was in Jericho, and he probably spent Thursday night at the house of Zacchaeus, the former uh, tax collector, chief tax collector. Then he got up early on Friday morning and departed from Jericho. And it would be about a half a day's walk over to Jerusalem. In the meantime, we had a little flash look over at what was going on in Jerusalem as he's probably making his walk to the to that area. And everybody is starting to gather in the in the area, setting up their tents, and, and they're all standing in line to be purified and buy their lambs, etc. And what is the one topic they are all talking about? The focal question, I called it. Do you think Jesus will come? Will he attend the feast? Then when he and his crowd, whoever he's traveling with, when they get to the area of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, it's probably Friday afternoon. And instead of going straight to Jerusalem, which he did not need to do because he did not need to be purified since he has never been defiled, he goes instead to see his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus and spends his last earthly Sabbath with that beloved family. So he would be with them Friday sundown because the Sabbath started at sundown. This is what throws us off when we try to figure out some of the Passion Week. Their days start at 6 p.m., whereas our days starts when? Well, 12. No, 12 midnight. <laughs> Trick question. Yeah, I'm not up. Either. Well, yeah, I am up at midnight because I haven't gone to bed yet. No, I'm not at 6 a.m. But their days start at sundown and our days start at midnight, so it throws everything off. But anyway, so he spent his last day Friday night, Friday p- uh, 6 p.m. until Saturday 6 p.m. With, with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Okay, then the next day is Sunday. He gets up Sunday, John 12, 12. This is um, now, let's see, it, it would be four days before the Passover. Yeah, because when he got there Friday, it was six days before the Passover. He leaves Bethany, and uh, he gets close to the area of Bethpage, still on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, so he still can't see Jerusalem, because the Mount of Olives is in between Bethany and and Jerusalem, so he can't see it. And that's when he sends two of his disciples to secure the two donkeys, and they set him, he sets himself on the one that had never been ridden before, and then he begins his prophetic entrance into the city, into Jerusalem. That's where we left off. So we have already, on your outline, we looked at the focal question, will he come? You think he'll show up? Then we looked at the foreordained cult, and we also discussed the forgotten calculation, which was the Daniel 9, 70 weeks prophecy. So now let's look at the fan-waving crowd. Okay, this is in all of the Gospels, but I'm just going to read from Mark's account. So let's look at Mark 11, verses 8 to 10. Mark 11, verses 8 to 10. It says, And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. 
And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, verse 26. And they said, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, here the huge crowd of people who Mark 11:9 tells us went both before and followed after Jesus as he began his approach to Jerusalem. They did four things. Let's break it down one by one. They did four things. First of all, it tells us that many stripped off their outer cloaks and spread them out on the roadway before the Lord. Now, this was an ancient way of showing submission to a monarch's authority and receiving him as king. It was a way of supposedly saying, we place ourselves at your feet to even ride over if necessary. Now, I don't think that most of the people in this crowd were quite willing to do that. I don't really see any of them falling at his feet. They throw their garments there, but they're not at his feet like Mary of Bethany was. And I don't think they're quite willing to have him ride over them, literally. Um, But they were wishing to honor and pay homage to the one who they really were hoping indeed was their true Messiah King. So that's one thing they did. They take off their outer garments and throw them in the way that he was coming so the donkey could walk over them. All right, second thing we are told is that they cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And for I guess this is for those who didn't want to dirty their outer coat or their you know outer robe or maybe didn't even have one on that day. Um, this was just another ancient way of demonstrating honor and reverence to an approaching monarch. It was kind of like laying out the red carpet for a VIP, or um, I thought about <clears throat> the little flower girls in weddings, how they go before the, the bride and they, and they straw out. <laughs> what a term. They, um, well, we can understand that because we live in a pine straw area, but they, they throw out the floral petals before the bride comes down the aisle. Okay, then the third thing we learn, we don't learn from Mark, we learn from John, and he's the only one who mentions this, but in John 12, 13, we learn that yet other people took palm branches and they waved them in the air as they cried out their hosannas. Now, this is interesting because palm branches have nothing to do with the original Passover. Now think back to Exodus 12 and the first Passover and what the Lord God told Moses to tell the people to do on that first Passover before they actually had the exodus from Egypt. What vegetation would you associate with the Passover? Not, yes, very good. Yesterday I got the answer of bitter herbs and leeks, but the answer I was looking for was hyssop because it was hyssop that they were to dip in the blood of the lamb and then put on the door posts, the the lintels of the door. But the palm branch had nothing to do with the Passover. Palm branches were to be part of the seven-day celebration of the seventh and final Feast of Israel, which was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which portrays the day when the Messiah will tabernacle among men and bring in the earthly kingdom. 
Leviticus 23:40 says with regard to the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, and ye shall take uh, with you on that day, without a dif- mention some other trees, but it also says branches of palm trees, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. The um, Feast of Tabernacles, they said, was the most joyous feast of the year. That was the, the happy one because God was finally tabernacling with man. It was, that's what it was picturing. So these people, you see, waving their palm branches, were hoping that Jesus would indeed establish the kingdom on earth. So this was, in their minds, this was an appropriate gesture. And it's interesting if you read Revelation 7-9. Of course, he didn't set up the kingdom at that time, did he? he ha- it had to be postponed because they really didn't accept him. It looks like they are, but they don't really accept him. Um, but when he, right before he does come to set up his kingdom, you can read what the saints in heaven are doing in Revelation 7-9. They're dressed in their white, and they know he's about to come and set up the kingdom here on earth. And guess what they're also doing? Raise, praising God and the Lamb of God, and they're waving palm branches. Revelation 7, 9. Well, the fourth thing that the people did as Jesus began and continued on his way to the area, from the area of Bethpage to Jerusalem was that they cried out. And this is given in the present tense, which means they continued to cry out. Now, remember, there were some two to three million people in Jerusalem at this time. Now, they're not all along the way that Jesus is coming. But even if you said a third of them were there, that's still an awful lot of people. And so some are crying one thing and some are crying another thing. And to get the full impact of all that they're saying, you have to take all four gospel accounts, which is what I did, and here's what collectively they were saying. Some of them were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's given to us in Matthew and Mark. Others were saying, "Blessed blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's given in Luke. Um, Hosanna in the highest, that's given in Matthew and Mark. Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, that's given in Luke. Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, and that's given to us in John. Now, something that we need to know is that when the people shouted Hosanna, it was not a cry of praise to Jesus. And that's what we think of it when we hear it, don't we? We think really they're praising Jesus. But rather, Hosanna was a prayer cry to God. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save now. It's a really, it's a, it's a prayer cry. It's a prayer. They were crying out to God here to break in or intervene in history and save his people now, now that the son of David, the king of Israel, their Messiah, had come. So that's what they're actually calling out. They're calling out to God to save us, deliver us. They're not thinking of spiritual salvation at all. They're talking about political deliverance. Deliver us now that the son of David has come. So there's no doubt that the people understood that Jesus was presenting himself to Israel as her Messiah. Their words and their palm branches tell us that they clearly were expecting him to, at that time, usher in the kingdom. Now, you see, what they would have done is they would have 
and you can't blame them for this. They would, because they didn't get the full idea, uh, picture of the seven feasts of Israel and what those seven feasts represent. You know, the seven God-given feasts of Israel are, are given to us in Leviticus 23. Those are the ones that God ordained for the Jewish people to celebrate. They celebrate some other feasts like Purim that are on their calendar, kind of like Fourth of July, but God didn't give them those celebrations, but he did give them seven Well, they, in their minds, they were going to bypass the first six of the seven feasts of Israel. You see, Passover is the first feast on the Jewish calendar. It's the first feast of their year that they are to celebrate. They didn't understand, and a lot of Christians today still do not understand, but this is true. If you think Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy is amazing, you should do a study on the seven feasts of Israel. How many of you ever have? Raise your hand. Okay, well, we're going to have to do a study on that. Definitely nobody yesterday either, <laughs> except one. It is fantastic. But um, they, they, would, they didn't understand that God gave those seven feasts as a prophetic picture. Remember, so much of the Old Testament is given to us for pictures. Pictures, pictures, pictures of Jesus. Those seven feasts were given by God to picture his overall plan of redemption through the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they would have bypassed the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Feast of Pentecost, which is the fourth fourth one. They would have bypassed the Feast of of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, and they would have gone straight to the seventh feast, which was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, which pictures, as I said, the Messianic kingdom of God on earth. And, um, And that's what they were celebrating on this day. That's the way in which they were celebrating on this day that he rode into Jerusalem. They were celebrating as though it was the Feast of Tabernacles. But you see, you have to have the first six feasts before you can get to the seven feasts. The Passover feast pictures Christ dying for the sins of the world as the Passover lamb. The feast of unleavened bread is him in his tomb, in his uncorrupted body. Unleavened speaks of, you know, no sin. His body would never have corrupted, never, because he was sinless. And that comes the day after Passover, the day he was in the tomb. Then the next day is the feast of what? First fruits. That's the day he resurrected from the dead as the first fruits, first fruit, singular, of the resurrection. Then 50 days from the resurrection, you get the feast of weeks or the, on the day of Pentecost. It's called the Feast of Pentecost because Pentecost means 50. It came 50 days after the resurrection. And the Feast of Weeks was, on, was the day that the Holy Spirit came down and the church began, right? Okay, now between, and there's other significance to it too. It's amazing because there was two loaves of bread. One represented the Jews and one represented the, the church. But anyway, there's a big space of time between the four spring feasts of the year, which all happen pretty close together. Bing, 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 and then 50 days, the fourth one. But then there's this big space of time before you have the last three fall feasts. Why do you think there's this big space of time? Well, it's the church age. It began on the 
Feast of Weeks, the, feast, the day of Pentecost, and it will end on the Feast of Trumpets. The next feast, the, fall, next, the next feast is the Feast of Trumpets. And then you have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then you have the Feast of Booths. Well, Feast of Trumpets, I personally 100% believe will be the rapture of the church. It will also be, in Israel, they would blow a trumpet to gather the Israelite people together. The, the church will also be, I mean, the, the saints of God will be gathered together to prepare for the coming of their Messiah second time when they will finally know him and accept him. It will be then her day of atonement. And then he will usher in the kingdom, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles. Well, they didn't get that picture, you see. They didn't know he had to die first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they were just going to bypass the first six feasts and go straight to the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you all get it? I see lights going on. Good. I'm glad. Um, and at that time, they were to have great joy. And it was a time of victory. And they were to be singing from the Feast of Tabernacles is when the people would sing from Psalm 118. See, now they're singing from Psalm 118, which has nothing to do with the Passover. It has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. The Psalm 118, which we'll look at in a little bit, is known as the Psalm of Deliverance or the Conqueror's Psalm. The words, Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, are from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Actually, did I already say this? I've got a headache, so I can't think very well, but... Um, did I tell you that the Passover was to be a very calm, sedate, solemn feast? As a matter of fact, the Jewish religious rulers would go throughout the crowds and make people hush. It was a serious time. I mean, when they were slaying lambs and et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't want the people to be joyous. But here, they, they couldn't help themselves. Actually, they're fulfilling prophecy. So uh, anyway, the primary problem with the actions and with the shouts of the crowd on this day is this. Although they were willing to throw down their coats and although they were willing to straw down some, some branches and some greenery and wave some palms and hail Jesus as the one that cometh in the name of the Lord to be king over their nation, they were not willing and ready to fall down on their faces before him and proclaim him king over their hearts and over their lives. They wanted him to be a king over their nation, not over their lives. They yet believed that he was just a man. Yes, he was their Messiah. They were strongly hoping he was. But yet he was still fully a man who came in the name of the Lord. They didn't say he was the Lord. They said he came in the name of the Lord to be one to deliver them from their oppressors, much like Moses had delivered their forefathers from the Egyptians. They did not see the Shekinah glory of God beneath that thin layer of human flesh, no matter how brightly it shined forth. Now, the people may have been shouting the words of Psalm 118. And here's where I do want you to go over there. Psalm 118, please. They may have been shouting the words of verses 25 and 26, but they yet failed to understand that there could be no kingdom without kingdom citizens. And there could be no kingdom citizens without a sin sacrifice 
that would purify and cleanse them so that they could tabernacle with God in the millennial kingdom and then throughout the eternal state. See, we cannot tabernacle with God if our sins are not covered because he will not have anything unholy in his presence. So they didn't understand that they first needed to be cleansed of their sins before they could be in the kingdom with God. They did not yet realize that a cross must precede the crown and that the lamb's spotless blood must be shed so that it could be applied by their own faith to the doorposts of their own hearts. They forgot about the verses that preceded and followed what they were quoting from. Look at Psalm 118. Here's where they were quoting from. Now, remember, we talked about verse 24 last week. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This day is speaking about Palm Sunday, the day he rode into Jerusalem, that day. And here's what they're quoting from. Verse 25, save now, which is Hosanna. I beseech ye, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech ye. See, I told you it's a prayer. They're, they're calling out Hosanna, save now, send now prosperity. And here's again where they're quoting from, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Okay, now they were quoting those, but obviously they forgot about the verse that precedes us. Look up at verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. And then look at the verse that follows what they were quoting. Look at verse 27. God is the Lord which hath showed us light. And then notice this. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. You see, they had it right in knowing that Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. But they failed to comprehend how rejection, I mean, it says, you know, they'll refuse the, the stone that the builders, the, the stone which the builders refused, they didn't understand how rejection and how a bound sacrifice could be affiliated with the very time of the coming of their promised Messiah. You know, when he comes, it's supposed to be time of rejoicing in their minds, palm branches, singing, all that kind of stuff. But how do you reconcile that with rejection and a sacrifice? It was like the same situation with the Daniel 9 prophecy. Daniel 9 had told them to the very day that they could expect the Messiah, the prince, to arrive. But then remember it went on in verse 26 of Daniel 9 to say that he would be cut off. This is when you can expect him, but he will be cut off. But not for himself. He didn't die for himself. He died for all of us. You know, even though the whole scarlet thread of blood redemption that runs throughout the whole Old Testament was there, you know, ever since God had to kill that animal for the sins of Adam and Eve so he could use their skins to cover them, you know, he had to slay, he had to shed blood to cover their sins. Ever since that, that whole scarlet thread of blood, the remission, you know, without the remission of, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That whole, that whole theme runs throughout the Old Testament. And yet they did not understand that their Messiah was to offer himself as a sacrifice on their behalf. Remember when Abraham was offering Isaac and he said, God himself will send a ram, lamb? And he did, they didn't understand that he would have to be sacrificed for their sins. And not their sins only, but the sins of the whole world. 
before he could then take his throne. Understand this. This is very important. You might have talked about this in your groups. I don't know. But even if Israel's masses of people had accepted Christ as their true Messiah and honored king, they didn't, but let's say they did at the time of his first coming. Even if she had accepted him, do you know what still would have had to have happened? He still would have had to die. Did you talk about that in your groups? Not yet. They did yesterday, so maybe some of He still would have had to have died. He still had to, to be the, the Lamb of God to cover the sins. Or nobody could tabernacle. Yeah, he could have set up a kingdom, but there couldn't be anybody in it. He had to shed his blood so that all you and I could be with him in the kingdom. Now, if the Jews had accepted him, I don't know who would have been responsible for killing him. Actually, the whole world was responsible for killing him because not only did the Jews kill him, but the Gentiles were there too, the Romans, you know. But somehow or another, he would have died. Satan would have seen to it because Satan has been ever after him since the beginning. And of course, over Satan is God orchestrating everything. So Christ himself would have seen to it that he died. I don't know if nobody was willing to kill him. He might have just laid himself up on the altar. Like Isaac was willing to lay himself up on the altar willingly. But he would have died. Then on the third day, he would have resurrected and immediately established his kingdom. There wouldn't have been the postponement course all of that is speculation because that isn't what was predicted to happen and it was predicted to happen the way it did happen but he one way or another he still would have had to have died all right i'll never get through at this rate let's look at the pharisaic contempt now you have to move over to luke go over to luke's gospel luke 19 verses 37 to 40 it says i'll just start reading because for time's sake and when he was come nigh Even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, remember I told you they're ubiquitous, here's some of them, from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Okay, here we are told that the whole multitude of the disciples, um, for time's sake, I'll just say that that would be a representation of his, uh, the whole fruit of his disciple-making ministry. It would include some of the Galilean disciples who came down with him, Uh, For the Passover, it would, of course, include the 12 apostles. It would include the women disciples that traveled with him. Probably includes his family, his mother and brothers and sisters. It would include all those that he probably gathered with him when he was in Jericho, Bartimaeus and his companions, Zacchaeus and others, who knows how many others came with him. And it would include those who had seen the miracle of Lazarus, and because of Lazarus's testimony, also believed in the Lord Jesus. Well, these people are really, they have the most to be rejoicing about. They have accepted him as their true Lord and Savior. And they're rejoicing and they're praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen him perform throughout his, not just recently, but for throughout his ministry. And um, in the middle of all this rejoicing, wouldn't you know it, there's these sourpusses again. 
there's these Pharisees. And, uh, and they're not pleased. Does that surprise you? And by the way, this is the last time the Pharisees are mentioned in Luke's gospel, which is interesting. I don't think that we're not going to hear from them again. We certainly do. But from Luke, we don't hear from them anymore. So really, we could say that their protest here in Luke's gospel summarizes their conclusion about Jesus. And what we see is that they don't accept him. Basically, they're the citizens of Luke 19:14 in the parable of the pounds remember the citizens that said we will not have this man to reign over us well somehow these particular pharisees got near enough to Jesus as he's riding on that little donkey and they speak to him and what they say to him here he is coming in as king and they give him a command amazing but they actually give him a command they say master rebuke thy disciples now that doesn't exactly tell us that they agreed with the words that the disciples were proclaiming about him right um and the words were blessed be the king they were not accepting that he was the king also i wanted to mention that there are no hosannas in luke's account if you notice no hosannas because luke was writing with uh gentile readers in mind Gentile readers would not know the word Hosanna. It would mean nothing to them because it was a Hebrew word. Well, the Pharisees here certainly don't seem to be part of all the electric excitement and the expectation of the day. There's no word of them taking off their outer garments and throwing them in the road. No word of them throwing branches on the road, right? No word of them waving palm branches. And and, uh, obviously they had not joined with all the loud voices that were praising and rejoicing or else they wouldn't have given this command. Well, why do you suppose that these Pharisees here were upset about the shouts of praise? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons. Actually, four reasons why they probably were upset. One is that this whole scene here, this whole episode, could really stir up the Romans and could definitely result in some bloodshed. I mean, these disciples are are proclaiming Jesus as king, and that would certainly threaten the authority of Caesar, right? And if you get the Romans upset, there could be some bloodshed here. And this, of course, is what the people were hoping for. They were hoping for a revolt. They were hoping to overthrow Caesar. Well, secondly, they could be concerned here because the Sanhedrin council had already given word, remember, that Jesus was to be hunted down and arrested. That was in John eleven fifty seven. Yet by this massive display of public acceptance, and Jesus brazenly, openly riding into the very place where the Sanhedrin was headquartered, it was really like everyone was just thumbing their noses at the authorities, at the Sanhedrin council. It was like they were saying, who cares what you guys decree? We're not scared of you one single bit. We are honoring him above honoring your little decree about getting him and and bringing him to you. And certainly the Lord's openness here demonstrates his total lack of fear of the Sanhedrin, does it not? I mean, he's coming right into enemy territory. He's marching right into the den of the wolves. And he sh- he's perfectly calm and in control, not worried about them one single bit. bit. There was no fear in him. Perfect love casts out all fear. Third reason is they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah King and he should prevent his followers from saying so. Fourth reason, and this is probably the strongest one of all, 
This demonstration was threatening their own authority and their own power over the people, and they were very envious of his popularity. And I think that's the real reason. They wanted the disciples to hush up. Well, whether these Pharisees liked it or not, the great weight and the importance of this day was prophesied in Scripture. We've seen that. Many, many different scriptures. And every aspect of the prophetic word would be fulfilled. And it just so happened that part of the prophetic word was the praising and the rejoicing of the people. Remember that Zechariah 9.9 prophecy? What did it actually say? Not just that he would come riding in on the, you know, on lowly upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass, but it also had said this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. That was the command. On the day he would arrive, the people were to rejoice greatly and they were to shout. So that prophecy would be fulfilled, even if the people didn't know why they were doing it. And Psalm 118, verse 24, which said, this is the day that the Lord hath made, we will, what? We will rejoice and be glad in it. The Lord had indeed made this day. As I said, he had been arranging the very details of this day from eternity past since uh, he inspired Moses to write Genesis and write all about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 and in Leviticus 23, give the details. And when he had inspired Jacob to give that dying prophecy to Judah and when he had um, inspired David to write Psalm 118 and when he had inspired Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah and all the other prophets he had indeed made this day he had orchestrated that entire day even though the people and including even the multitude of true disciples did not themselves perceive all the full implications of this day yet it was foretold by God that they would welcome his son on this day in this manner. So he was welcomed with the cries of rejoicing and gladness. If the people had not done so, (laughs) one way or another, God's word would have been fulfilled. And that's exactly how Jesus responded to these Pharisees. Very non-intimidated by their command to him, He responded by saying, I tell you that if these, speaking of the people, should hold their peace, either because they fear Rome or fear the Sanhedrin or fear you guys, if they would hold their peace, guess what? Got news for you. The stones would immediately cry out. And by that response, the Lord was telling the Pharisees who he is. He said, tell us plainly, Okay, guys, I'm telling you plainly. I'm the Messiah. I'm the King of Israel. And I will be proclaimed one way or another. Furthermore, by telling them that the stones themselves would cry out, he was also saying he was God. Because who else could make a statement like that (laughs) except God? Uh, And he had already demonstrated for three and a half years that he he had the power and authority over nature and even over inanimate objects. He, he had showed his power over diseases of every kind, over demons, over deformities, and even over death, as well as his dominion over the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. He was riding on a colt that had never been broken in before. Um, he had demonstrated his power over the winds and the waves of violently storm-tossed seas. 
So to make some stones cry out would not have been a problem for God. Not at all. In fact, in just a few days, when the people stopped praising him, when all the excitement toned down, and the Jews pushed the Romans into crucifying an innocent man, and even his own disciples had forsaken him, the very sun in the sky hid its face uh, to keep from public view his last three hours of greatest agony. Remember? got dark, totally black, so you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face for the last three hours as he hung on the cross. And then when he cried out for the final and seventh time from the cross and said, it is finished, and then gave up the ghost, it tells us that the, the earth did quake and the rocks rent. There was an earthquake, and it caused what? The veil in the temple to be rent in two from top to bottom. Nature was crying out. Stones and rocks would cry out then. And they, they clearly could have done so here on Palm Sunday as well. You want to hear stones and rocks crying out? Just read through the book of Revelation. Do you know what's going to happen during the time of the tribulation? Oh my, you do not want to be here. Rocks and stones and meteors and the sun and the waters and everything is going to cry out. Yes, God has control over nature. So Jesus was making his official presentation to Israel as, as her Messiah, and he had not even entered into Jerusalem yet. He's not even through the eastern gate yet, and he's already beginning to receive the message of com the coming response of the officials of the nation, and it isn't good. You know what their response is? Tell your disciples to hush up. Silence your followers. That's still the message they're giving today, isn't it? Silence the Christians. But the Lord continued to accept the homage of the people, and he refused to silence the voices of his followers. Now, in John 12, 19, I know I've never had you over in John, but there we are told the words of another little group of Pharisees. I don't know where these Pharisees were, but somehow, somewhere they were looking at all this going on and the crowd of people shouting out their praises to Jesus, and they are not very happy. And so they say to themselves, this is John 12, 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Now, I don't know if you can pick up on that, but these are the words of very frustrated, very angry, very baffled men who are vexed at seeing all of their plans defeated. Instead of finding people w willing to lay their hands on Jesus and bring him to them to deliver him up in obedience to their command, they find hundreds of thousands of people surrounding him with all of their joyful acclamations and they're greeting him as a king. And all they could do about it was stand there and watch. They couldn't, their hands were tied. They couldn't do a thing about this scene right now because if they had even tried to arrest Jesus or you know, have any kind of restraint on him at all right now, what do you think would have happened? They would have been the ones in jeopardy, and they knew that. So they, they, all they could do is stand there and watch their most hated enemy approaching Jerusalem as her long-awaited Messiah deliverer, and it was kind of probably like Haman watching Mordecai being praised there in Persia. <laughs> 
with the representative Jewish people from every tribe present, it surely appeared to these Pharisees that Jesus had won the day. Looks like he's the victor, doesn't it? Of course he is, but... Um, likely at this point the Pharisees are anticipating some kind of a revolt during the Passover that would end with them hanging on the very gallows that they had prepared in their minds for him again reminding us of Haman and Mordecai perhaps he would even now that he's got these millions of people perhaps he would even you know go to the temple and perform some kind of a mighty miracle in front of all of the people maybe he would even raise up another dead person and capture the minds and the hearts of all these ignorant people maybe he'll even capture the minds and hearts of all the roman soldiers that are here they said among themselves behold the world has gone after him You know, the fact of the matter is that he did indeed raise another dead person. Who was that? Himself. And as the seeking Greeks, if you're in John 12, 19, just look at the next verses. The next thing that we're going to be looking at in John will be some Greeks who are there for the Passover and come seeking Jesus. I hope those are some of my ancestors. I love those seeking Greeks. But they're seeking for Jesus. And uh, as we know, there have been people from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every tongue over the entire world who have come to Jesus Christ. So really here, they're kind of giving a prophecy. The whole world, now not the whole world in every individual, but the whole world represented, represented by all the different peoples would come to Christ. So it's really, there's, God is using them prophetically. Okay, the fatal consequences... You're in Luke? No, you're in John. Go back to Luke, Luke 19, 41 to 44. I really have to go through this fast. Fatal consequences. And when he was come near, he's still not in the city, but he's getting close. He beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, there it is again, the things which belong unto thy peace. Oh, it broke his heart. You know, if there's one thing Israel has wanted all these years, what is it? Peace. And she could have had it at that time because Shiloh, the prince of peace, the peacemaker, was there. But she didn't know the day of her visitation. He said, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. Of course, he's looking ahead of time at uh, 70 A.D. when the Romans would come and literally do this. They, they'll come and cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and uh, keep thee in on every side. They were besieged at the Passover, at the time of the Passover in 70 A.D. when there were like a million people in Jerusalem. Romans, The Romans came under Titus Vespasian and they, um, they built a trench around the city and they besieged the city for 143 days and many Jews, they say like um, 600,000 Jews perished. Awful, awful things that went on, even cannibalistic, it was terrible. And uh, many of them were crucified when they tried to escape the city, but uh, then the whole city was taken over and, and leveled. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 44, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. All right, it's somewhere place 
in his journey to Jerusalem, suddenly, I don't know if he's at the top of the Mount of Olives or wherever he was, if he turned a, a, a curve in a road, but suddenly there before him lay the whole city of Jerusalem. And if ever there was a city close to the Lord's heart, it was the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means, the city of peace. And it's just the apple of his eye. And there she was. And, and it must have, what happened next, must have really shocked the masses of people and seriously disappointed his disciples. Just think about this. At the point when everyone is rejoicing and praising God and it was looking to be the very best day of their entire lives, all of a sudden... The very one they believed to be Israel's king and Messiah burst into an anguish of deep tears and sobbing. Now this word for wept is not the same Greek word we found for wept when it says in John 11:35 Jesus wept. That was when he stood outside Lazarus's tomb and just tears fell down his face. There was no audible sound. But here, when it says he wept over the city, this was a different Greek word. This is a word that actually means audible sobbing. It's like the, the bewailing cries for the dead. You know, those hired mourners? Um, but his wasn't. His was genuine, and it was loud cries. It was far worse for him than standing outside the tomb of one man because... He can, he can see the future, remember. He can see the end from the beginning. Can you imagine? I, I don't want to see the future. What, what, what would it be like if we could see the future for this country and all that might be happening in the future? What if we could have seen the future of what would happen when the Twin Towers were, were um, attacked? You don't want to see the future. But he could see the future, and he could see all those little innocent children being killed. He could see all the all the agony that would happen in not just in 70 AD but down through the centuries if any people has suffered it has been the Jewish people and he could see all that and I cannot imagine how that would break your heart and naturally of course he just he just sobbed his eyes out soon he knew not one building would be left standing the temple would be totally gone and her citizens would be killed, enslaved, or deported and spread, you know, dispersed to all the, the countries of the nations of the world. And it would be hundreds of centuries before the bones of her many skeletons would come together again in the land. You know, Ezekiel's valley, vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. When did the bones of Israel start to come back together again and form a skeleton? May 14, 1948, when Israel again came back into the land. And now she looks like she's alive, doesn't she? There are people back in the land. They're walking around. The sinews and the flesh and the organs have all come back. So she looks like she's alive, but she still does not have God's breath. He has not breathed life into her. She is not born again yet. He knew that uh, hundreds of years would come, actually 2,000 years, before those bones would be gathered and even more horrific suffering than she has ever encountered. And think what she's encountered with the pogroms and, and uh, the Holocaust and everything. But more horrific suffering than she's ever known is yet coming in the tribulation. And he knew it wouldn't be until after all that, at the time of his second coming, 
when he would finally be able to breathe life in her and she would accept him for being her true king and her true savior. So sitting there upon that little donkey, the Lord lamented with a loud voice that surely everyone could see or hear at least. And it was really strange. It was a strange and awkward moment for the people and especially for his disciples. But once again, the Lord's heartbreak here was fulfilling a prophetic type picture of the Messiah, which was given to Israel in her prophet Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet. If you want to read uh, about the tears of a man who wept over Jerusalem and his beloved Israel, read the book of Jeremiah or read the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah shed many, many, many tears over Jerusalem and over Israel because he foresaw, just like Jesus here, her coming destruction in the Babylonian captivity. So again, he's fulfilling prophecy. And the Lord wasn't weeping for himself here. He wasn't weeping because he knew all that awaited him by way of suffering, you know, rejection, betrayal, suffering, and crucifixion. He was weeping over this city and over her citizens and really for Israel because she did not know the peace, the way of peace that she could have had, which was through faith in him. And so he, he wept and he said, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this day the things which belong unto peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. You know what that is? That's judicial blinding. Did you know there comes a time, we don't know when that time is, but can come a time even in an individual's life when God will judicially blind them? You know, there are scales over most of uh, the Jewish people's eyes. Now, that doesn't mean all of them. They can individually come and I was saved by a completed Jew. And there are many Jewish people now coming to the Messiah more than ever. But as a nation, she's been judicially blinded because of her own willful blindness. She lost her day of opportunity and it literally broke the Lord's heart. Well, one more thing and we'll close. But I do at least have to get him into the city, okay? So let's look at Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And verses 10 and 11. And we'll get him into the city, all right? And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. That's an important word there, moved. It means literally shaken, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Well, finally, he's in the eastern gate, okay? He's in the city. And the impact of the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem was great. According to Matthew, the whole city was shaken. And the Greek word there for moved or shaken is found only three times in Matthew's gospel. And it speaks of being greatly emotionally moved or even troubled to give you a picture of what this word means, the first time it was used in Matthew was back when Herod the Great heard from the wise men, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And it tells us when Herod heard this, he was very troubled. That's the same word, shaken, moved. 
he was very, very protective, fanatically so, about his, his kingship over Israel. He even had killed immediate members of his family so as to protect his role as king over Israel. Now, he had no business being king. He was a usurper king. But when he was troubled, the whole city was troubled with him. That's the first time this word is found. Here's the second time it's found in uh, Matthew's gospel. And again, the whole city of Jerusalem, just like with Herod the Great, the whole city is shaken by masses of Jewish people proclaiming Jesus as the king of Israel. The Pharisees were shaken. We've already seen that. They were moved. They were troubled to new and deeper depths of envy and jealousy and malice. The Sadducees were moved, troubled, shaken with deeper uh, thoughts of murder. The Herodians, who were those Jews who compromised with Rome, they were moved, troubled, shaken to new levels of fear that if Rome was overthrown in Jerusalem, they would lose their power and maybe even their own lives because the Jewish people, by and large, did not like the Herodians because they compromised with Rome. And the Romans, although mocking a man riding in as a king on a donkey, yet they too were probably shaken, troubled, moved over what the masses of people might do. You know, a popular uprising could be in the making here. And they were far outnumbered. You know, even if their king himself appeared kind of motley and totally harmless, yet the people might do something. And the people in general were shaken, troubled, moved. I believe because they sensed something very significant happening here. Although most of them did not have a clue how critical this day was, there still was this electric atmosphere on that day. Something was going on here. And I also think that the true disciples of the Lord were also shaken. This was his moment. This was his moment to stand before the people and speak. Go to the temple and say something, Jesus. Tell them who you are. And then perform some mighty, mighty wonder, some fantastic miracle. And yet, his tears and his sobs and his words just a short time ago had troubled them immensely. He had sobbed harder than they had ever seen him cry before. And he lamented over the city, which he said had not known the importance of this day and the time of her visitation. So you see, everyone, literally, in the city was shaken. Everyone was shaken. Now, the third time that word is used, I won't get into that, but the third time is at the time of his resurrection. This is interesting. At the time of his birth, on this day, it was a presentation to Israel, and at the time of his resurrection, the keepers of the tomb were shaken, troubled, moved, so much so that they keeled over. They fainted. That's in Matthew 28, 4. Well, the question posed within the city uh, by those who had not been part of all of this march into the city and were wondering, what is the, who is this commotion all about? 
the question was, you know, who is this? And the response to that question is given by the multitude who was just with him. And here's their answer. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, of Galilee. Now, it sounds there like little attention was really paid to, um, to what they had been shouting just moments ago. Their words had been right, you know, but not the hearts. Thousands had barely finished pronouncing Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel. But now it appears that they don't really understand what their own lips had been saying because now when their emotions toned down a little bit and uh, others who were not part of that procession into the city ask who this commotion is all about, here's their answer. He's that prophet Jesus from Nazareth up in Galilee. Now that's a correct answer. That is who he is. But their assessment of him falls far short of the full truth. You see, they heard and they saw, but they did not understand and perceive. The crowd outside, which many of them were a part of, had been hailing him as Messiah and King. Even the, ra- the, um, the Pharisees had called him Master to show some respect, which means rabbi or teacher. And uh, now, now when the crowd gets inside, they call him the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. But you see, here's the point. Where, oh, where? Tell me, where is anybody saying this is the Christ, the son of the living God who has come to be our savior from our sins? Where is anybody like that penitent publican saying, have mercy on us. We are sinners. We need a savior from our sin. You don't hear that, do you? Well, as we're going to learn in our next lesson, Lord willing, next week, rather than leading a procession through the whole city, which is what you would expect a king to do, right? A Caesar would have done that. Even a pope would have done that. Yet Jesus goes straight to the temple. Okay, he's going to the temple. Guys can see that. All right, he's going to go to the temple. He's going to get a big crowd in front of him. And as I said, he's going to have some wonderful speech. And, and say, we're going to overthrow Rome. Here we go. Ch- change. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't do that. He goes straight to the temple, of course. He dismounts from his little donkey. He walks into the temple. And what does he do? He just stands there in total silence, doesn't say a word, and just looks around, gazes around at everything that's going on in the outer courtyards, And then when eventide comes, gets back up on the donkey and leaves the city. Now, don't you think that that must have been a deep and disappointing moment for his disciples? Don't you think they were very, very confused and disappointed that he did not do something that day? And don't you think, when you get to thinking about it, that one disciple in particular was really, really disappointed on that day? I do. Thank you. I'm sorry I kept you over again. At least I didn't have to make it a three-part study. Let's pray.